Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. For more than 20 years, Les Flitcroft was an engineer. A series of life-shattering events culminating in serious injury that resulted in the loss of use of his left arm and a diagnosis of permanent paralysis left him in a desperate situation. Skeptical about alternative therapies, that desperation led him to conclude anything was worth a try. A trip to the US and an introduction to Master Choi Koksui, a pioneer of pranic healing. The application of pranic healing techniques on his paralyzed arm and within six months, full function and strength have returned. It was an experience that has literally changed his life. For the last 20 years plus, Les has been the director of the Institute of Pranic Healing in the UK and Ireland. Globally renowned author, coach, speaker and philanthropist Tony Robbins said of Les, he has helped me physically, emotionally and mentally, enhancing my performance and has helped me work at my optimum levels that I have always been accustomed to. I have found a genuine soul with an incredible talent to heal and enrich people's lives. Sasha Maskelo Tarbuck, Global Creative Director for Tony and Guy, describes Les as an amazing man with an incredible gift of healing that helps to create a sense of well-being and balance in people's lives on so many levels. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. So, Les, good morning. Good morning. Welcome as uh, my guest on the Astrology Podcast. Great to have you as always and uh, and fascinated to get into, into conversation with you. But um, uh, as always with Astrology, we like to start with the beginning or at the beginning with the early days. So tell me, where did you grow up and uh, and what was childhood like for you? I grew up in Berkshire, in uh, Reading in Berkshire. Had um, quite a, a straightforward life, I suppose. Went to school. Uh, the brother, my parents were hardworking. We weren't um, very rich by by no means. My mum and dad struggled, and they worked seven days a week. But my education was good, and we worked through to when I was sixteen. I left school and uh, went into an engineering uh, apprenticeship. That's how it all started. My dad got me a job where he worked. He forced me into engineering. I was going to ask and, you about the journey into engineering, actually, and how, <laughs> how that came about. But from what you've described, that was, that was your father's uh, influence, I guess, as much as anything else. It was, yeah, yeah. When we, I remember discussing with him in the early days what, uh, we were gonna, what I was going to do. And it was from the army to the police, because my cousins were all in the police. And he said to me, no, you're going to get a trade. Uh, engineering's the trade. I, he was always an engineer. He was an engineer himself. So that's what he did. He got me a job where he worked, um, and it was to do with um, oil fields. And we used to manufacture oil valves for the oil and gas industry around the world. So that's how I started engineering with apprenticeships to begin with. So when you go back to, to childhood days, who were, the, who were the posters on the wall? Who were those that you admired and, uh, and looked up to when you were growing up? There wasn't many, really. I, I can't think of anyone that I really... 
hooked into or anyone that I really looked up to. You know, it was always the pop stars, it was always the film people. But I never really looked at anyone as a someone that's, oh, you know, I'd really like to be like that or like to be like this person or anything like that. I just, I definitely didn't want to be like my brother. That was definitely that. <laughs> that was one thing I didn't want to be like. Was, it, was he older or younger than you? He was three years older. So we had a, a, a very difficult childhood together. We were never friends. And him being three years older, it was quite difficult in the teen years, early teen years. So, but then when we grow older, in our 20s, he got married and I've become his best man at his weddings, which really surprised me, to be honest with you. So, uh, but yeah, since then, we've been great friends. But when we lived together, it, uh, it wasn't uh, too colourful. I suspect there's many a listener who might have uh, or might be able to call upon similar experiences with respect to sibling rivalry. It's uh, it's um, can be a wonderful thing, but at the same time, it can also be a challenging thing. So, so tell me, you you, you move into engineering. How did the engineering and and for as I understand it, twenty or so years as an engineer before we come on to to the subject of pranic healing? And tell me a bit about the engineering career, if you like, and how that unfolded and how that evolved. Well, I worked in the oil and gas industry, as I say, all the way through my youth, through my 20s. And then the gas and oil industry went down and then uh, I went into self-employment. I started a business with a friend of mine and I worked in that then for over two years. And like some partnerships, it just didn't work out. We couldn't really uh, get on. And then I went back into just contract work with engineering for a short while and then I got an opportunity at British Airways and that was in 1991 Um, and then from there started engineering uh, took all my aeronautical exams Uh, then I went into management there in BA and then from there we went I was um, we were the actual company was sold off and we were bought by Lufthansa Technique so the engineering division of the airline, German airline. And then from there, I worked my way up and become a general manager then for Lufthansa Technique. And so, yeah, it was quite a different career, the way it sort of moved and changed through the years. Lots and lots of experience. Absolutely. So tell me how you, um, what was the discovery of pranic healing from your perspective was a was a fraught experience, as I recall from from previous conversations. But But how did pranic healing arrive in your life right so really it was by accident literally an accident I was uh, playing football at the time and uh, it was in a I was in a sports hall I was up in the north end of England actually in a tournament and uh, unfortunately there was an accident I was running towards the, the wall in the sports hall and the guy behind me apparently tripped I catapulted into the wall, banged my head, uh, went to get up, and my arms weren't where they should have been anymore, especially my left hand. So uh, I badly broke both of my arms, but the left arm became very, very uh, a complicated break. And I was sent to hospital, spent then, unfortunately, two weeks in hospital, uh, five operations, and I nearly lost my arm, basically. Uh, the right arm was broken, so that was just in a normal cast. But I had five operations on my left arm, and 
Um, I remember the specialist sat on the edge of the bed and saying, well, we've actually saved your arm, but the likelihood that you'll ever get your left arm back to use uh, is next to zero. The nerves have been so badly damaged uh, through the accident and through subsequent operations. And yeah, I spent two, uh, two weeks in hospital. So from that, then my arm was paralyzed. Goodness, mate. Do you, do you remember how you felt at that time? When, when, because obviously I, I would imagine that you're, you're clearly, you mentioned playing five aside, you're clearly active. You know, you're, you're uh, I guess at this point, were you, for want of a better expression, I was going to say on the tools, literally, were you still on the tools? Or was that management responsibility more about cajoling groups to, to, uh, to get on the tools on, on your behalf? But clearly active, clearly very practical, clearly enjoyed a burgeoning career, I would imagine at this point. How did you feel when first told that, Really sorry, but your uh, your left arm isn't gonna gonna work anymore. Yeah, it was uh, it wasn't very easy because I was then still working on the aircraft. So at that point, I'm in serious trouble because I thought, well, I'm going to lose my job. You know, my career's gone as well. So when I did go back to work, uh, I had a very very good manager, and uh, he put me onto projects, which was really really good. So I started working on that. Obviously, driving I couldn't do. Uh, I was driving all the way up to the airport. and So there's lots and lots of difficulties that I faced at the beginning. And then that's how uh, I worked with a couple of people from abroad, a particular lady uh, that I knew as a friend. She was into all sorts of complementary alternative therapies. She always studied many, many things, although she was an engineer as well. And then she came across this um, pranic healing. And she said to me, you know, this, this new modality that I found is fabulous. And, you know, you should come. This great master's coming over to um, – she lived in, at the time in America – and she said, uh, you should come over and maybe I can get uh, for you to see him. So, to be honest, I wasn't into complementary or alternative therapies. I was going to say, had you, had you had any experiences of complementary alternative therapies at that point in your life? No, never at all. No, no, I was always sceptical, never thought, you know, that wasn't me. Even when she was in, in the um, UK for a period of time uh, and uh, our company, she was um, into different things like Reiki, reflexology, all sorts of different things. And she was always trying to say, oh, you know, you should come along to this and that and the other. And I would, I'm not interested. I was never interested. So, yes, I was a very, very, very skeptical person. Do you remember how, how you felt when you had that conversation where she said you should, you should come and try this, this, this new mode that she was, she was in this new, new therapy she's into? New therapy, it's been around for... For centuries, as I understand it. But at that point, do you remember you, that cynicism? Do you remember how you felt? Yes. It, the To be honest, the only thing was, in my mind, was she lived in California. So I thought, I'll go on holiday. I might as well have a holiday anyway. At the time, I was single anyway. I was on my own. So I thought, I'll go on holiday and just uh, meet this Chinese man. And But I, basically, I booked a holiday over there. So I flew over there with just the expectation of going on holiday with, because again, you know, the medical had said after five operations, there's no way you're going to get your arm back. So in my mind, that's it. I'm done. It's not going to happen. 
And had you any movement or feeling or sensation at all in your left arm at this point? No, none at all. No, it was in a sling and a harness. So it was harnessed up. Also, what they had done, they'd um, put a screw into my wrist as well so that my wrist wouldn't flop around. So it, the, the wrist was fixed as well with a, a screw. So, yeah, I literally put, had to pick it up, put it in a harness every day. So that was it. Yeah, it wasn't moving. So, yeah, that's where, um, that's where it all started. Did, did you get, you hear of, uh, and, and if to forgive my ignorance, but perhaps naivety, but you hear of stories of people who perhaps maybe more specifically around something like amputation where they have phantom pains or sensations or experiences. Did, did you have anything at all? Or was the, the nerve damage was so bad that there was just, it was literally just for want of a better expression, it's hanging there in the sling and that's it. That's that's how I can remember it. Yes, I mean some years ago, but I can't remember having any sensations at all. I think it's now and again would ache. It would ache mainly in my shoulder, though. I think it was probably just the weight. But other than that, absolutely nothing. I couldn't move my fingers. Like you know, say I used to be very fit, so I used to do a lot of training, a lot of weight training as well. And one of the things I noticed with my arm in such a short space of time was my arm went to skin and bone in so quick. And then it even even that side of things made me reflect on training, thinking I used to pump my body up, I used to do loads of training, and what was it all for? You know, very, very quickly, if you don't use it, the body then just wastes it away. And that was also a thing that made me learn about just self-care. Yes, do training, but don't go too mad. You know, I was literally training three, four days a week, I uh, was very, very fit at that time. But, yeah, it made me pull back on what really is essential. What's the purpose of doing certain things? You know, it, it did change my mindset in a lot of ways. That time on reflection was a very good time for me because it made me see life a little bit differently. It may seem a trite question, but were you left-handed? Or are you left-handed? Yes. Are you? Yeah. Goodness. So yeah. even, my goodness. So left-handed, yeah. So I had to learn to write with my hand, right hand, even um, signing your signature that you take for granted, of course. I, I couldn't sign anything. So, of course, if you think going back, uh, 1998, it was, uh, 99, just before 2000. If you think then, they used to check your signature. They lo- used to look at one, look at the other. Even on your bank card, you know, if you were, if you were absolutely a, a credit, credit yeah. card cheater, whatever it might have been, absolutely. Yeah. They would literally look at your signatures. So, of course, I had to really, really uh, get to that point that I could sign my signature quite well to get anything authorised. It, it was a really hard time, to be honest with you. It was very, very difficult. So, I know, actually, you've almost got to, I say almost, you've got to rewire your body in many ways, haven't you, to, to adapt yeah. to the, the challenge that's been presented to you. Yes, and even going back when, yeah, obviously, for a period of time, which is very difficult, so I don't mind sort of sharing it, is when I came out of hospital, obviously my left arm's paralysed, my right arm is in a cast past my elbow. So I, I had literally lost use completely of my arms. I had no use of my arms at all. So I had to go back to my mum and dad's and stay there for a while. So you can imagine washing, doing other things, uh, you know, just general things that you'd take for granted 
having no arms for a period of time was very, very difficult, getting your mum to do things for you again and your dad to wash you or, you know, used to have to shave me. And that was, uh, <laughs> that, was a, that was a fun time, I must admit, for a while. And, and I guess, therefore, that has, I mean, that must, all of which has a significant impact, all of these things, significant impact psychologically, emotionally. Yes. You know, it's not just about the physical, which clearly of itself is an enormous, you know, enormous issue to try and overcome. But yes. you've also, there were a million and one other things as well. Was there any sense that you would not recover use of your right arm as well? Was that ever a concern? No, that was a straightforward break. I broke the right arm in two places. So that was just literally a straightforward break. So yeah, within what eight weeks or so, I was out of the cast. Then I had to start getting it working again. Um, and then obviously with that, it got back to normal very, very quickly. So after eight, ten weeks, something like that. So that was okay. But as I say, then I had to learn to write with my right arm. I had to learn to do things with my right. And so, yeah, it was quite complex for quite a period of time, to be honest. I, so, can, I can imagine. So tell me, so, so you've made the decision to go to California. Yeah. And again, I, I don't wish to sound flippant, but it sounds like from, you'd have earned a holiday by this point. You'd have needed, the, yes. you'd have needed yeah. some sunshine and a break. But do you remember, so your, your introduction to pranic healing, when you arrive in California, was that still that sense on the flight of... Had you given it any more thought or was it still a sense of, well, I'm going and you know, I'll enjoy the sunshine, I'll enjoy all that California has to offer and then see what happens, we can go from there? Yeah, except the, the latter. Literally go to California, see what it's like. Um, I was going to go up into the mountains up in the California anyway. So I booked a place up there. So that's, that's basically what I, what I was looking forward to. And when I got there, I met my friend there. We had a good chat and she said, oh, you're going to meet him. It was literally the next day. I think, <laughs> I think she didn't give me any time to think. So she says, I've, I've sorted it all out. You're going to meet this man tomorrow. Oh, great. Okay. And who is this man? Tell us a bit about this man. Well, his name is Master Chokok Sui. So he's, uh, he was a scientist and a chemical engineer. So what he'd done, he studied Eastern and Western medicine over you know, the whole of his life, basically. And obviously, I hadn't done any research. I didn't know the man. I didn't, she didn't even tell me his name at the time. So I didn't know anything about him, what he could do. You know, you sort of think back as a child, I suppose, with all the Chinese philosophies, Kung Fu, martial arts, all these mythical things that, you know, you'd look at as a kid. I suppose what you asked me earlier on, maybe that was a little bit of that side of things with the martial arts. So that was it. I, I just didn't know anything about him. But yeah, when I started to research after I met the man, his background was engineering, science. So even when I physically met him, you know, he's a very, very intelligent man. He was very, very methodical in his ways. And the thing was that I didn't know. She booked me on a class, not, not to see him one-to-one, -one, but to book me on a course that he was running which I didn't know, which I was not happy about, to be honest. I was going to say, how did you feel about that? Yeah, I wasn't happy because I just thought I was going to meet this Chinese man, but literally um, she booked me on the class, which was quite an expensive thing. So I had to pay for the course as well. Bearing in mind, I paid for the flight, paid for a holiday as well. And there was uh, three courses. Uh, yeah, three courses I had to take with that package. 
what were the courses? Well, the level one, so the first one was the level one pranic healing, where you learn about the energetic system, you learn about the how to heal not only other people, but also yourself. Uh, and that's when I met Master Choa. And um, the nice thing is when I went through the class, obviously I went in, sat down thinking, you know, what have I got myself into? And sat there, he started the process or the program but everything he talked about was one about the history, about life, history, about certain things. Then he started including science. Then he started including Eastern philosophies, Western philosophies. And then bit by bit, then we were doing experimentation on certain things. You know, how to move energy. How do you create it? How do you project it to someone else? Very, very simple things. And even to feel it. So we started to do these exercises and then I started to feel certain things and if I'd done an experiment, it worked. So I'm starting to think, hmm, okay, fair enough. So, And he said at the very beginning, keep an open mind. Whatever your background is, whatever you've done before, just try and put it to one side and just go through these processes and draw your own conclusions from what you experience. So I thought, well, okay, fair enough, I like that. But of itself is not easy, is it? We're, we're the sum of our parts. You've got um, uh, roughly, what, what sort of age were you at this point? I was uh, 31. So you've got 31 years of, of deeply entrenched kind of, you know, psychological makeup that's been built up over that period that has wired you a certain way, which I absolutely understand. We can all, we, yeah, we, we're constantly evolving and we can change. But that's of itself, keeping an open mind is not easy. No, it's not. No. But the way he spoke and the way he went through the process, it made sense. So when we, um, I think it was by, by the afternoon of the first day, we started to go into procedural things, so which fitted my mind as an engineer. So he said, everything is a procedure. Everything is a technique that you use for a specific thing. So if you follow the technique and apply it, it then works because you're using the same methodical test every time. So that's what, like he said, this is an art. An art. Many complementary therapies or alternative therapies are like arts, art forms. But pranic eating was a science. So like he said, it's experimentation and validation. And so every single thing that you learn, so um, like a cold, if you have a cold, you follow a set procedure for it if you have a back injury you follow a set procedure and then i don't know you go on uh, lung disease headaches all simple things that's how we started the process so everything was a technique and so by the second day because it was a two-day event the first class by the end of the second day everything made sense logical sense none of it was wacky or weird or off the wall Everything was experimental. So, you know, if you didn't think or you didn't agree, then he said, just draw your own conclusions from what you experience. So everything was not blindly taught, if that makes sense. So he's not trying to, for want of a better expression, enforce or force his view and way of thinking on you. He's asking you to embrace it, see what you experience and see what almost what you experience from your own perspective, how that shapes your, your thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it was really, really methodical, very precise, 
made sense. So I sat back by the end of the second day and I thought, well, yeah, it, it does really make sense. But even at that point, I'm still thinking, well, I've still got a paralysed arm. Uh, you know, yes, I've learned to do healing and you learn how to self-heal. How is this going to impact me? So I'm still thinking that way. And then I was invited out with him the evening, which was very unusual, apparently. But he invited me out for a meal. And I sat next to him. There's about 10 or 12 people, I think. And we sat there and um, he said to me, he gave me the technique. He said, right, if you use this technique every day, within six months, you'll get your arm back. And I was like, really? And he went, yeah, but it's up to you. He said, it's your choice, your arm, your choice. And he left it. That was it. That was the end of the conversation. So I had two choices. So literally from what I'd learned in the class, I followed the set procedure of what he gave me. And literally within a few, well, he, sorry, I'll go back. In the afternoon on the second day, he'd done a healing for me. And I could feel like water. It felt like water flowing through my arm. That was the first feeling that I'd had in my arm for, I don't know, 10 months, 12 months or more. So a very long time. Uh, although then I obviously couldn't move it, I could feel like water or something moving through it. And how did that make you feel? What was your uh, what, what was your reaction, I guess, to, to that sensation? Yeah, really odd. It, it was literally so odd because it, it felt like someone was pouring liquid through my arm, literally. That's how it felt. I do remember that very specifically. And then nothing more. And then... I started to apply the techniques myself after that and very quickly within two weeks, maybe three weeks, as I say, it's a long time now, but within a few weeks, I started to feel slight sensations, burning, tingling, all different feelings in the top end of my arm, not down to the hand, but in the top end of my um, forearm. Within probably two months, I had a really bad... Um, you know, when you sit on your arm yeah, and the like arm pin, goes pins dead, and needles. And then you of. get pins and needles. Yeah. But sometimes it's quite extreme. Yep. It felt like that, pins and needles. Uh, then I'd done a bit of research into it. Pins and needles sometimes is when the nerves are coming back to life or coming back uh, or, well, they say that nerves can't grow back. But in my case, they did. But things started to come back to life again. Within, say, three months, I had full movement of my arm, but I still had numbness in my fingertips. By four to five months, I think it was, as I remember, I had full feeling in my fingertips, full movement in my arm. And the problem then was that I had the screw in the wrist. Yep. It was locking the wrist. And what happened is a big lump came up in the side of my wrist, I went back to the doctors, they referred me to the hospital, had an x-ray, and the screw had actually come out of the bone and was protruding over in the skin. And so um, I had to go in for an operation. Now, this is the funny point, because this is procedures again. Although I could move my arm, I had full movement, and spoke to the doctors about it, of which the medical records said that my arm was paralysed, the procedure said I had a screw in there. So what they did, they operated, took the screw out, drilled back into my wrist. 
and lock my wrist back up again. So, so then I had to go through. Uh, I actually then said to them, you know, there was a bit of a discussion on it. Anyway, lucky enough, I don't know how, why or what, but I could start to move my wrist after that point. And anyway, it went on from there. Then I started to uh, exercise it. And bit by bit by bit, I got full use of my arm completely back. So that was all within five months, within five months. That's an incredible story. What impact did that have emotionally, again, is the phrase I want to use, if only because the thing that strikes me is that we, clearly, you know, if we look, at, we look at our medical institutions, Western medical institutions, wonderful, wonderful people, incredibly intelligent, doing wonderful things, you know, 99.9% of the time, if not arguably even 100%, from a place of absolute love, care and attention and affection and all those kind of good things. So you're, you're told by somebody that we, we grow up trusting these, these institutions and these people. When you're told by a, a seasoned, learned medical professional that your arm is paralysed, awful though that must be to hear, I would imagine most of us would go, okay, you know, even if emotionally we don't want to accept it. And I don't mean okay as in that's all right. I mean, okay, well, you know your stuff. That's how it is, is ultimately the conclusion you reach. Of course, yeah. And now, you know, we hear all sorts of stories about people saying, well, look, I wasn't going to take the doctor's word for it and I was determined to prove them wrong and all those sorts of, you know, that's, that's, that's well documented. But you've been told by someone that your arm won't work again and then there you are months, years, a couple of years later with a fully functioning arm. That of itself must have just... What impact did that have on you, on your psyche, on your thought processes, on your, on your emotions? To be honest with you, although it repaired and I got my arm back, I still didn't believe that I could do such a thing and get it back. You know, I still was questioning my, I don't know, my, my sceptical mind, even at that point, that did I really do it? Was it? Would it grow back anyway? Would things have happened anyway? And when you sit back and look at it and think, well, no, because it was way over 12 months and nothing was happening. It was dormant. Nothing was happening. And it was only when I actually applied those techniques that it worked, if things started to happen. But even then, you know, you had the split between your mind. Did I? Didn't I? Did I really do such a thing? But it was only when I started to work on certain people, like my dad. My dad had a serious heart attack. And I started working and did the same uh, a protocol again for his heart attack. There's a specific technique for that. So I applied that, although at first he didn't really want me to do it. I was just going to ask, I think we had this conversation <laughs> before, if I look at my father was an engineer, or is an yeah. engineer, was an engineer, he's retired now. But I think if I were to have a similar conversation with my father, my first thought would be he's going to look at me as if to say, you're this is you're mad. Respe yeah. respectfully. This is all woo woo. You're mad. What do you think Absolutely. you're playing at? The doctor, you know, take me to a doctor. Give me a pill. Have an yeah. operate. Whatever. There's a there's a there's a method to fix this that I trust. I'm familiar with, and I understand. That in itself must have been an interesting conversation. More or less the same conversation. <laughs> it was more or less exactly that. But I said to him, look, you know, uh, he had damaged his bottom end of the heart so seriously, um, and they didn't give him long to live. They said that. We can't operate. Your heart is very damaged. We can give you medication, but the chances are that, you know, just enjoy yourself as much as you can, basically. And he couldn't walk more than 20 feet without getting out of breath. Uh, he was in serious trouble. So I said, look, 
same as my arm. What have you got to lose? Let's just try it, Dad. Let, let me give it a go. Let's try it. So I did start to do it. And very, very quickly, my dad could walk, not out of breath, not a problem. There was no issue at all. And even at this point, you see, because I couldn't feel anything myself, you know, when I was actually doing the work, but what I was applying was working. So regardless if I believed it or not, like my arm, it still worked. It's not a belief process as such. So I started, as I say, working on my dad. Very quickly could walk, not a problem at all. And then he started getting heart palpitations, which obviously straight away he blamed me for. So he said, I'm getting like palpitations in the heart and what have you. So I said, well, go back to the hospital then, get a test. Well, of course, with a heart, they're very, very quick. Referred back to the cardiologist, back to the hospital, saw the specialist. And they'd done a series of tests on my dad. And now this was under 12 months um, that this happened. And he, this is what changed my, my whole uh, aspect, my dad's perception on what I do. He went in the specialist, sat down, they went through his records, and he said, Mr. Fickhoff, we see that you had a heart attack um, last year. And with a bit of confusing news, but very good news, is the fact that with all the tests that we've done, your heart is actually perfectly fine, is in very good working order. But this is the confusing thing, because normally tissue and so on won't regrow again once you've had a heart attack. But with my dad, obviously it did. So that was it. They reduced his medication because the medication was causing the problem, I believe, or that's what they said. So they brought him down to a maintenance dose, very small dose of medication, and that was it. And he came out of hospital and his heart was absolutely fine. Not a problem at all. What was his response? What was the conversation between the two of you at that point? Uh, we didn't say, he didn't say too much. He told me about the story. But then from that point, if he had an ache or a pain or a problem with this, problem with that, he was straight on the phone. Fix my arm. Sort this out. Sort that out. And now my dad's 90, uh, 93 this year. And, Goodness. you know, 20-odd years later and he's having a good life and he's very fit. For his age, he's very, very good. How did they react, your parents react, to the return of the use of your arm? To what did they attribute that? Were they able to to sort of rationalise it in any way, shape or thought? Were they just put it down to, well, that's just one of those things? Yeah, we never, ever talked about it. Not in the early years once it happened. We've talked about it sometimes now, but then, years ago, we never discussed it. I don't think, a lot of people never used to discuss all sorts of things years ago, did they? It just sort of got on with life. And because of their age, obviously they've been through the war and been through many things, you just didn't discuss problems or issues. You just, okay, that's the next bit, get on with it, get on with life. That's the way we were sort of brought up, really. So from that point, really, I started to treat friends, family, people around me. Uh, obviously, while I'm doing this, I'm flying backwards and forwards with uh, Master Choa then, I got to know him very, very well. I, I'd imagine, yeah. So, what's the backstory to pranic healing? Where does it where does it stem from? How does it come about? Because I think we've got this. We're in a fascinating time where we've got this. You know, uh, as I see it, a, a rise, a real rise of 
many more Eastern philosophies having had such a huge Western influence in so much of the way that we've looked at the world, particularly post-war, Second World War. The last 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years have been very, very heavily dominated by the West globally in terms of in terms of economic power, science, all those kind of good things. But all of these science, you know, China, or Eastern philosophies, medicines, principles, techniques have been around for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Absolutely. So what's, what's the what's the backstory to to pranic healing? Where did it come from? Right. So the, the background comes from many, many areas. Like you said, it wasn't one person or one country that formulated it many, many years ago. But it was like a natural art. In other words, somebody knew that they could feel or see energy, they could use it, they could heal. But it was never formulated into a science as such. So by him studying Eastern and Western medicine as such, he said his job was to bridge the gap. So one of the arts, which we say, is called medical Qigong or Qigong practices. So if you take Qigong, you have uh, within sort of like uh, one level is massage therapy. That's where it comes from. If you then look at acupuncture, acupuncture is level four, Qigong. If you look at acupuncture with herbal remedies, it's level five Qigong. Then above that, it's called external Qigong, which is non-touch. So it's non-touch therapy. So pranic healing is a non-touch healing system. So you don't actually touch the body or go near the person. So that's where it sort of derived from. Then there was other healing arts, if you like, from India and Japan as well. And then he formulated them into a, a science. Because like he said, if you have an ailment or a condition, it doesn't just arrive. It arrives over a period of time. So there's a link or a trace of that to be created. So what he said was, or what he looks at, and what I've now studied, is the, the body will create an energetic pattern of the physical disease or physical condition. So with us, or what we do with pranic healing, you're using the, me the energetic approach to reverse the energy pattern, which is the blueprint for the physical symptoms or condition, if that makes sense. Yep. So over a period of 30 years, he studied many, many conditions of the body, physical and emotional and mental as well, because it's all levels. And then he started to formulate procedures and experimented time and time again to validate that, I don't know, if you have arthritis, you follow this procedure, you follow the energetic pattern back, then the arthritis started to get better and even cured. And it went on from there. Heart disease, like I did with my dad. Even then psychological, if you create stress and anxiety, it's not just electrical Currents going through the synopsis of the brain. We feel it, we think it. So you produce particles or energy. So if someone's depressed, they create an energetic pattern of that depression. So by backtracking the energy pattern, you're able to cure and uh, take away depression or addictions, things like that. So it's quite amazing. So when people learn it, they learn the techniques. And then there's all the books and everything else that you then follow. You literally follow the set procedure. So it takes your mind out of it. 
Whereas a lot of modalities, it's sort of one treatment suits all, if that makes sense. But this is where it came then into a science. That's why I liked what I found, you know, what I did, what I actually applied. So from that, then I started to teach it. He asked me to spread the teachings and teach it in the UK, in Ireland, a few other countries. And of course, then you teach people. They do the same as what I do. They apply it to their families, their friends, you know, their children and, you know, aunties, uncles, whoever. And, of course, they get the results. And this is what made pranic healing grow so fast. I think he established pranic healing in 60 countries in less than 10 years. So if you think of that alone, it was quite an amazing feat what he'd done from 1987 when he first brought the first book out, which is called The Ancient Science of Pranic Healing which later become the miracles of pranic healing. So from that then, um, now, it's in 126 countries plus in the world. The medical profession have learned it. My, I myself have trained countless doctors. I, I can't give you a number, but it's a lot of doctors, medical profession, and this is what I sort of lead into now, even around all around the world now. They're doing clinical research and development on pranic healing. Because what sets it apart from others is that it's a science, so it's procedural. Mm-hmm. And like you said it earlier, with Western medicine the way we are now, it's science, it's procedural, it's validation. And this is where now pranicking is bridging those gaps. Had you had pushback from the medical profession? You mentioned you're, you're training doctors now. Had, yeah. had initially you had experienced some pushback from the medical profession? Hugely. Yeah. from a lot of people because it's like anything new isn't it if you if you think of just the human mind when you're bringing something new in whatever it may be from a phone to what i do with healing the word healing alone conjures up all sorts of things in most people's minds and i even questioned master Chur on it at one point and i asked him why did you call it pranic healing And he said, prana is a Sanskrit name for energy, and the body heals itself. If you then uh, go out drinking or take all sorts of things and ingest into your body, sometimes we're ingesting poisons, but after a very short period of time, the body heals itself. So he said, people need to get to understand that their body is a fantastic healing mechanism. So what you're doing is using the hidden laws of nature with energy, which which is all around us, that our body absorbs constantly, not only from our food and our drink, but from our surroundings, and the body will heal itself. All you're doing is giving it a specific energy in certain areas of the body so the cells can replenish and regrow and regenerate. Like you said, like with your arm, things regenerate. So it made perfect sense. So he said... People need to get understand that healing isn't a bad word. It's a word that your body does every single second of your life. It regenerates every seven years. You know, the cells, the bones, the tissues. So he said that's what it is. He sounds, uh, his, his impact, if you like, on your life is, you know, is, is here for us all to see, not only in a, in a practical sense, in terms of the teachings and learnings that have been afforded you as a consequence of the of the connection, but also what other ways, I guess, what have you learned other than the practical? What do you think you've learned from him? Oh, tremendous amount. 
One of my biggest things that I needed and really wanted to learn was about the mind. You know, why do we think in a certain way? Why do we feel? Why do we hold on to certain things? You know, conditioning of life. So when I learned the panic psychotherapy, which is the third level, and then I started to do other classes and, and spend a lot of time with him in the end. I, in, towards the end, I was spending more and more time with him and learning so much about us as human beings and how we operate, how we just live our lives. And it became very apparent, um, and again, validated through all the things that I've studied and learned, that it's amazing how you can change the pattern of the mind's thoughts, how the mind creates these thoughts, how we create these feelings. What What is anxiety in the first place? You know, it's imagination of the mind creating scenarios that aren't real. That's basically what it is. So how do you stop the mind from doing that? Because if a person becomes very, very stressed, and medical science are now knowing, that if you get overstressed, the physical body then will react and a condition will arrive. But they don't know how to stop the stress. In other words, how do you stop your thoughts creating things that aren't real? How do you stop yourself worrying over something that isn't real? So... This was something that I really, really wanted to study, and that's what I did. I studied in depth about the mind, and again, over the 20-odd years that I've been doing this, the amount of people that I've taken out of addiction, taken out of depression, uh, stresses, anxieties, phobias, fears, that alone, you know, on the psychological side, has just been tremendous. Because if you think of just this, just, to, um, just as a thought process, is every time you have a thought, you create like a particle of energy. Now, whatever that thought is, if it's positively charged or negatively charged, you will create more of them. And most of us think negative all the time, don't we, with our stresses and life, you know, like, especially in this time. So the more and more you think, you can create thousands and thousands of these little particles every single day. They must be somewhere within you. So as soon as you know the hidden laws or the hidden secrets that lie behind that, you're able to extract the particles out. You don't even have to talk about why you're depressed or where it came from and so on. There's specific pockets and areas within the system of the body where these particles will sit. With a type of energy that you can utilize and use, you're able to extract it out of the mind. It's like taking books out of the library. So this is why panic psychotherapy alone is really accelerating around the world because people are being cured from all types of psychological illnesses or problems like super fast, really fast. You know, you don't have to be in therapy for a year, two years or longer to try and work out the process of your issues or your problems. So it's very, very quick. Do, do you think the the mind is still in a mass sense, if you like, it's still massively misunderstood. So there are clearly those, you know, your own learning and study has, has you know, you, you've been able to acquire a really in-depth knowledge and understanding of the mind. But in a general sense, we, we it's it's greatly misunderstood. So we, we, I think a broad sweeping statement for which I, I am always apologising for these things, but, you know, I draw the analogy that when you, when you, your own experience, you break an arm, you put a cast on it, 
in most cases, it's fixed. But when yeah. we, for most people, you see a cast on someone's arm and you kind of, we make a connection. We go, poor you, you've broken your arm. But the, the expectation and understanding is we might have a conversation around how did that happen and, oh, goodness, poor thing. And, oh, but, you know, in six weeks' time, the cast comes off and, hey, you might have a bit of physio, but life is back to normal again. But so we, we can, because we, it's tangible, we can, yes. you know, we, we can quantify it tangibly in our mind. We can understand it. With anything that is, you know, arguably the mind, the most powerful asset, the brain is, is the most powerful asset we have at our disposal. It's complex, but because we can't see these things, I think, is there a sense generally it becomes misunderstood because we can't, it's not tangible. It's intangible. We can't pinpoint it. We can't, you know, see the bandaid on it. We can't see the plaster cast, whatever it might be. We can't see those things. So we, we're more dismissive of it. Is that your, is that, is that why do you think the, the mind is, it strikes me so misunderstood in, in such a grand way? Yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, especially the older generation. Like I said to you about my parents, you know, in the older generation, you just didn't discuss about feeling down or low or depressed. Nobody really understood it. You know, even up till probably ten years ago, we really didn't understand why somebody could be down or low or off sick because of stress. What was it, or what is it? So we we're sort of starting to understand it more now, but. The field of science has got a long way to go to try and get to those truths, if you like, or to really understand it. Because like you say, one thing, you can't see it. So thought patterns, you can't really see. You know, they're doing loads of series of tests on the mind and the brain. And, you know, if we feel this, how we think this, certain areas of the brain will illuminate. But we still can't understand how we openly generate that thought process. So, yes, it's very, very difficult and if you take, uh, shall we say, Western medicine, if you think about it, if there is no cell damage or tissue damage, there's no diagnosis. They, they can't pinpoint the problem. So like even say, let's take something, fibromyalgia. It's becoming very common in people nowadays, fibromyalgia. So the person has body aches, muscle tension, problems like that, and they've now named it as fibromyalgia but they don't know the core of the problem. The core of the problem with fibromyalgia is if you say you're, I'm uptight, what does that really mean? I'm uptight, you tense the body. Now, the muscles go into fatigue because if you, like I used to do, you know, weight training, if you work the muscles enough, they get fatigued and they ache. With fibromyalgia, if you're overly stressed and have tension in the body, eventually the muscles will go into tension and get fatigued. It causes body aches. But there's no bridging of that gap. If you've got fibromyalgia, the medical science is still looking at the physical problem. They don't bridge the gap into the psychological problem. Then as a psychologist, they can understand that if you're stressed, you have this, there's a process that your mind has created. So they try and help to follow the process back to try and help you to make sense of what your mind's creating. So you can overpower, you know, with uh, willpower to overpower it. But it's saying it doesn't bridge back into physical pain or problems. So a lot of people have pain in the body. There's no physical sign why that person has pain. So they can't diagnose anything. So we're still in that problem where 
medical science and psychology still aren't bridging the gaps. And and it strikes me, the first thought that comes to mind with what you describe is there would have been a time when people have said, oh, it's all in your mind. Exactly that. Exactly. And they even say it nowadays. Yeah. 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 Even the medical will say to the person, there's no diagnosis, there's no cell damage, no tissue damage. It's psychosomatic. It's in yeah. your mind. It, it, it doesn't exist. Yes, well, a lot of conditions start with the thought process in the mind and a physical condition will arrive. And they're starting to see that with stress, but they don't know how to get rid of the stress. Other than say, you know, go off sick, you know, with your job, it's causing you stress, so we put you on sick. Uh, We may give you antidepressants because you're feeling overly stressed. And hopefully that will help you to relieve the symptoms of stress. And then the body doesn't ache anymore or you know, starts to change. But the thought patterns don't go away, you see. So that's where pranic healing, again, is bridging those gaps because you can work on the person psychologically for the core of the reason, and then you can work also on the physical condition to also relieve and cure those symptoms of that physical problem as well. So all these things are possible. And that's why medical science now are starting to look at it. You know, we're doing research on it very soon, even here in the UK. Um, And we're going to be doing psychological as well as physical conditions, under control conditions, very soon in the hospital. So tell me me about your practice now. So you you are, uh, do you have the right to say, 250 healers that you've taught? Uh, What would be the expression I would use, educated? uh, Oh, no, it's in the thousands. It's in Literally, the thousands, goodness. Yeah, yeah. We've, um, I don't know, uh, overall now I've taught maybe maybe eight to 10,000 people. My or goodness. More. The 250 was in COVID. So during the COVID pandemic, you know, obviously I know we're still in it, but the first wave and even in this wave, what we had, we got up to 250 um, advanced trained healers to help people with COVID all over. And with using the pranic healing technique, again, the specific technique for the COVID disease or virus, the healers then were doing this on people that had COVID and the results were outstanding. And so that's why someone in the medical, which I can't go into details at the moment, but someone in the medical profession was overviewing what was being done and the results were outstanding for people to come out of their, you know, the virus to be ejected out of the body was tremendous. So, so what I understand is if you, if you go back to when, when first you have the accident, I understand that at, what, at that point, you, as, you, as you put it, almost kind of, I suppose you, there's a degree of, well, you've got nothing to lose. You have an yeah. open mind, you go to California, you've got nothing to lose, give it a go, and actually it's changed your life. Yes. But but if you reflect on where you are today, what, what is it that drives you now? Well, it very, very, uh, the one thing that really happened, I'll, I'll give you a quick story, but it's a very heartfelt story that really ultimately knew, from my point of view, knew then that this was going to be a massive part of my life. This was my life. Was um, my brother's son, his friend was run over by a, a van. And he was in a coma for over a month. And it got to the point that uh, the little boy was, they said, the medical said that the machine was literally um, keeping his body alive. 
Now, periodically, I had said to my brother, bear in mind, this is quite in the early days, I kept saying to my brother, ask the parents if I can go in. Maybe I can't help, maybe I can, but let's see if I can go in and just treat this boy and see what I can do for him. And he wouldn't ask them. And it got to the point where literally it was the week they had signed the form for the little boy's organs to be donated to science and for the machine to be turned off on the Friday morning at 9am. So bear in mind that this little boy is 12 years old. So I kept saying to my brother, just ask them, what have they got to lose? They've got nothing to lose. In the end, he did ask them. They allowed me in. I went into the hospital, went into the room with the little boys, you know, tubes and wires and everything. I had my cook with me, uh, you know, on the protocols and all the things. Now, obviously, I'm on my own. I have no way of contacting Master Chur and the Institute of Inner Studies. It's like, right, I'm on my own with this. Went in, sat down, looked at him, and I was thinking, you know, what have I put myself into? Can you really do something like this? Anyway, I followed a set procedure of, say, someone that's in a coma, brain injury, so on. So I followed the set procedure. I'd done it. And obviously nothing happened. I'd done everything I did. Walked back out. The parents are crying. Now, this is on the Thursday afternoon. Now, this is exactly how it happened. So I went out. They are crying. I started crying, to be honest. I just didn't know what to say or do. And I said, well, I've done what I could do. I'm hoping maybe it helped him either pass or there may be a possibility of something happening. I don't know. And I went home. There's no mobile phones. I didn't have a mobile phone then. Went home, went to bed in the evening. At six o'clock in the morning, my brother rang me. And he's screaming down the phone. He said, I don't know what you've done and everything else, but things, something's happened with the little boy. So with that, what happened is the nurse went in to check overnight and his pupils changed and he released or relieved his bowels. So very, all of a sudden, something's happening. So cut a long story short, basically he started shaking. And they said, oh, it's just the electrical currents, if you like, going through the brain and what have you. But because he's where he is, you know, he won't survive. And then they moved him to John Radcliffe. So then I took time off of work, which at the time I wasn't allowed to, So, but I did. I took time off of work and I went up there went into the wards and even the doctors and everyone were looking at me and I was doing the healing technique. Again, you don't touch the body, so you just do the healing technique and wave my hands around a bit. And very, very quickly, he started to become conscious. Now, within eight weeks, he was conscious. They moved him back to Reading. Then from that, then he started walking around, doing many things, and I was healing him every other day all the time and he was actually on the news but at the time they asked me if I would go on the TV but at the time I was working in engineering still so if I went on TV and said that I was actually doing this at work and when and why and what I was doing I'd have lost my job so I couldn't say anything but that little boy within two months was out playing football again and that's what wow. changed the course of really changed my life 
So my arm, breaking my arm, doing what I did with my arm, I still was sceptical. Doing my dad, helping other people, there was still scepticism. But when I'd done that with that little boy, that was it. I knew from that point that this is my life. I have to do this. And that's why from that point, panic eating and what I do become a passion. And then when I met Master Choa, I talked to him about it. And he said, he said, there will be many more that you will help in around in your life. And it will escalate and it will grow. It will get bigger and bigger and bigger for you. And it has. I've never looked back from that point. And uh, very quickly from that point, I sort of, uh, I stayed in engineering for another 12 years, working pranic healing alongside, growing the courses, growing the healings, growing everything that I'd done. And now from now, uh, from that point, then I stopped engineering, went into this full time and it's expanded tremendously. And as we say, now I've taught doctors, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, many people on all levels to apply it one on themselves which is an amazing thing and two on other people and a lot of people are even now using it as their full-time careers so that's the great thing about it it's just you know for me it's been a an amazing time an amazing journey that's you know we're only halfway through we've got a long way to go yet so and now i'm going to start medical research which is my goal and we've got we've got it we're going to start doing that within the middle of this year once the pandemic hopefully is uh done in june july would be starting it so yeah, so it's a it's a wonderful story les and I, ordinarily at a point such as this I, I i might ask a question of my guest you know, what does success mean to you but i guess this even the, the i mean the story you've just told arguably does it get any more important than you know than, than human life absolutely it's a it's, it's, it's wonderful story and and it's great that there are people around like you who can do these sorts of things yeah, what you. about i would imagine the experience that, as you say, it's a process, you follow that methodology, but I would imagine it's quite, it's exhausting emotionally, intellectually. What you're giving is, is how, how do you unwind? How do you relax? Do you switch off? How do you get away? And, and, and what do you do to switch off? Yeah, there's techniques that you learn like meditation, uh, healing yourself. There's things that you use within the practice to keep yourself up. You know, so if you've gone through or, you know, I've seen many people that have been through many, many things now over the years. And all you do then is just, you know, you either, the, the problem with a lot of people that's doing the uh, work in the service industry, they take on a lot of the emotions from other people. You know, if you think of this just naturally, if you're around other people and they're down and low, very, very quickly, you can feel down and low. They draw your energy, simply. So once you learn the techniques, one, you can stop someone or stop the energy being absorbed away from you, from other people that don't feel well or down and depressed. But two, you can also heal yourself, like I did with my arm. So whether that's physical or psychological, by using the practices, you can keep yourself away from stress, anxieties, all sorts of things. If you've got a physical ailment, you just turn the healing on yourself. And then on top of that, there's meditation. So um, it's called the Meditation Twin Hearts. Now, this is now being practiced by millions, literally, around the world. And even now, it's practiced with um, Tony Robbins. So Tony Robbins, the um, motivational speaker in America, yeah? 
So I met him a few years ago. I was working on him, literally. I was treating him for for about two years. And he then looked into what we do, and he wanted to then employ it into his UPW. So now um, a colleague of mine called Master Stephen Coe, he now is on his UPW around the world, and he, he does the spiritual side of the talking, and helps people to know that they're more than just the physical system and the mind. There is much more. But also they do the meditation, the twin hearts as well, to help them. And say, you need to purge the stress, the emotions, and the feelings out of you to become successful. It's the same as all of us. You know, we're generating between twenty and 80,000 thoughts a day or plus. Some of them are mixed between present, most of them are past, and scenarios of future. Then by doing this twin hearts meditation, again, medical research has been done on this, and they found that it releases and removes a lot of the stress and the anxieties and emotional content within you, the negatives, and helps you to be more resilient. And even the cognitive behavior, you know, your sharpness of mind becomes more and more and better and better by doing the twin hearts on a regular basis. And what they did, they'd done medical research. They took a, th- um, a group of people that never meditated before. Because again, even the word meditation is becoming more natural now, isn't it? But years ago, they thought, oh, it's, it's only for wacky people and so on. But if you think about it, meditation is concentration and awareness. That's really what it is. So with the twin hearts, they took a group of people over a thousand hours and they registered and monitored them at the very beginning, you know, their emotional stress, their cognitive behavior, and so on. And then through the process, constantly monitored them. And then after a thousand hours, they put them through a series of tests that they did at the beginning and found even their intelligence increased substantially after the thousand hours of meditation. So it's quite unique and quite amazing what it does. And I think that's all on the internet now on the meditation and twin hearts it shows it all so yeah medical research even in with meditation with healing everything's starting to bridge those gaps and that's part of my goal and part of master's vision is that if you could get a person to learn it say a person in every household to learn pranic healing the release and the relief of physical problems and emotional problems would be tangible because you've got your own person uh, bridging the gaps with medical. Obviously, it's not to replace medical, but we're overrun, you know, in the NHS during the pandemic. If more people learned pranic healing, a lot of people would be relieved and cured of their not only their physical problems, but also psychological problems so much quicker by someone in the household. If you could, with the benefit of hindsight, reflect back and sit, 21-year-old Les Flickcroft down, <laughs> um, what advice would you give him? I'll say, instead of going drinking, boozing, nightclubbing, because <laughs> that's what I've done exactly the same as everyone else, you know, if you learn the science of this early on and apply it, your life gets better. You know, if you take the level three, for instance, so you do pranic psychotherapy level three, you have no limits on yourself and other people because you learn how to physically help yourself, 
through to psychologically help yourself and then others around you. So I remember me going through many things as a, a young guy, like we do, and you learn through experience, don't you? You experiment, you do all sorts of daft things, and then you learn through those experiences. And sometimes we've got to go through those, which is fair enough. But if you learn this on the side, it doesn't have to be your profession, and not everyone wants to be a healer, but you learn a technique that you can just apply. If you have a hangover, you work on it. You know, if you have stress at work, you can work on it. If you, I don't know, whatever you have, you know, if you have arthritis, you can work on it. It's just amazing what you can do for yourself. So for those listeners that want to, where can we, where can they find you? You know, for the people that are interested in, just in, in understanding more about pranic healing as a, as a start, where, where, yes. how can they find you? Where can they find you? Well, if they go on ukpranichealing.co.uk, our website's there and that everyone can uh, look at what we can do. All the testimonials are on there, the courses, the classes. And pranic healing isn't just about healing. It's only one arm of the teachings. That's why it's called the Institute of Inner Studies and that's where the base is in Manila. That's where Master came from. Uh, so part of the teachings is one about finances. So you learn the hidden secrets that everything is energy. So you learn that in depth about energy. So prosperity is energy. If you know how to correct your mind, you know they say about repeated thoughts, repeated words, create your life. Have you heard that one before? Yes. So repeated thoughts, repeated words. That's what you harvest. That's what you create. So most of us are stressed, anxious, nervous, doing all the things we don't believe in ourselves. We've got a limited self-esteem process. So if you remove that out of your mind, anything is possible. So once you work and understand the science that even lies behind prosperity or financial growth, then you can achieve it. Then on the other arm of this is about spirituality. Now, most people think, oh, spirituality, again, it's about meditation and so on. But if you think of us as spiritual beings, if you like, we're all spiritual. It doesn't mean to say you have to be religious, or if you are or not, it doesn't make any difference. But someone being spiritual is someone being dynamic, courageous, good-hearted, intelligent mind, highly intuitional. Now, everyone has that ability to create that. But how do we create that? It isn't about sat there meditating all day or taking yourself off to a, you know, to a monastery or something like that. It's applicable techniques every day in your life and you can achieve it. Simple as that. And that's what I've done over the years. It's called Arhatic Yoga. It's not the yoga that you normally see on the, you know, the gyms and so on. This is to do with your mind and the process of the mind and going beyond, if you like, the mind. It's like psychology. Psychology, if you think about it, comes from the Greek word. And it, if you look at it and you break it down, it's study of the soul. Yes. Psychology now say it's study of the mind. Who is correct? The mind or the soul? So one of the things I always talk and I do in some lectures and I talk to people about is how do you know with intuition something that you need or going to do before you've done it and when you apply it or you walk the path of it you correct the mind doesn't know your future 
the mind only knows your past. It only creates scenarios of your future. That's why you worry or doubt or fear. It's true, isn't it? So intuition comes from a higher order above the mind. That's why psychology, if you like, has a ceiling level because they say over and above the known quantities, then you're into esoteric or unknown quantities, and that's intuition. So with the studies of all of this, the Institute of Inner Studies, you get to learn that you're not just the mind, you're not just the body, you are a soul. There is more than this physical. But because we're based on the five senses, the physical, you can't see the soul because it's made of energy. But energy infuses into everything. If you take atoms, we've got neutrons, protons and electrons. They've been able to harvest now the neutron and the proton, but they still can't harvest the electron energy. And it's everywhere. It's free. It's for us everywhere. And that's how cells regenerate, replenish, all sorts of things. And that's how we energy then is infused into life, whether it's your finances, whether it's your health, whether it's relationships, whether it's to do with spiritual growth. Energy is the infusion into everything. Les, this has been uh, hugely insightful. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. As always, I've learned so much. Uh, I think that's uh, always a privilege of the guests that I enjoy on, uh, on Extrology. So I really appreciate you taking the time out today to come and, come and talk with us and share with us your journey and uh, the story behind the story. I think it's, it's, it's wonderful what you're doing. My very best wishes for your continued success. And uh, I really appreciate, as I say, you taking the time out to come and share it with us today. Many thanks. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me on. Thanks, Les. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say. Any feedback always gratefully received and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.